Well, before I get too far going today, I just wanted to um, mention that last week, Jennifer Mayu, where's Jennifer? Uh, standing in the back. Jennifer did a remarkable message on the cross. We should tell her thank you again for that one. That was worth hearing. Thank you, Shelly. And, and she really, and first of all, it's good to be home. Uh, got a cheap new suit. Thought I would wear it. Surprise everybody. Dress cheap, look good. That's my motto. Um, Jennifer's message last week for progressive people. Of course, we believe Christianity has always been progressive. But you again and again come to these questions. Okay, as you progress in your ideas, deconstruction generally is what leads the way. We all remember going through that phase where we knew or began to believe that we didn't believe certain things. But, um, oh, yeah, kids, I forgot, I'm out of the practice. Junior high, senior high, Brother Barton, take them down. Any of junior high and senior high kids that aren't already down, you guys can go down. Um, It's not a very satisfying place to spend your spiritual journey, your human journey, just knowing what you don't believe. And we've all kind of been through that phase of realizing, you know, I just, I don't think those thoughts about God anymore. Um, And the big, for Christian people, the big subjects, probably the cover in the work that I've done for the last 20 years with deconstructing people individually and corporately, 95% of the conversation always ends up, and Lee, you've done this, it always ends up talking about what do we mean when we say God? Who are we talking about when we're talking about Jesus? What do we mean when we think about an idea like salvation, which last week Jennifer's message on the cross was very to that end. What do we mean when we talk about humans? What do we mean when we talk about the afterlife? And of course, a big one, what do we mean when we talk about the Bible? It is noteworthy. This is not the God belt or the Jesus belt, is it? It's the Bible belt, and that says something. Um, I looked a few years ago at 85 of the largest evangelical churches in America. Of the 85, 60-something of them had a statement of faith on their website, and of those statements of faith, over 80% of their statements of faith led with, number one, not God, not Jesus, but the number one statement of faith was what? The Bible. Well, I have a high love for the Bible, but I don't read the Bible the way I used to. I don't see the Bible the way that I used to. And um, in terms of practical, a lot of people, you know, God, Jesus, salvation, afterlife, the Bible, um, I forgot one, but um, two practical matters that really matter a lot to people as they're reframing and trying to say, okay, I I don't necessarily believe that about this, but what do I believe about it? Um, One would be prayer. I hear people all the time in kind of post-evangelical settings saying, I I don't know how to pray anymore. I mean, I don't pray anymore. I don't know what to say or, you know, who I'm talking to. And, and the second uh, is worship. What do we mean by worship? Um, you know, do we still have this megalomaniac sitting on the throne saying, oh, run through that one more time for me, would you? <laughs> Tell me how great I am. One more. Is that really why God had us to be a perpetual choir telling whoever God is how wonderful they are? So worship and prayer are, are big ones. As a part of worship, communion is a, is a big one. Um, you know, are we vampires drinking blood? Are we cannibals eating flesh? You know, is, is this vampirism and cannibalism? Am I drinking life and salvation? Am I, what, 
what do we mean? It's macabre for a lot of people. What do we mean when we say that Jesus looked at his disciples, broke a piece of bread, and said, this is my body? What is meant by that? What modern meaning can we carry into our lives when I lift a cup and say, this is, this is the blood of Jesus? We know it's grape juice, um, but what do we mean when we say this is the blood of Jesus? And when we take that, what, what literally happens, what metaphorically, allegorically happens? So we're going to take the Lord's Supper today. Um, and before we do that, I want to talk to you about the Lord's Supper um, just a little bit. Every summer, I attend a progressive Christian festival in Hot Springs, North Carolina. And it just so happens one of our leadership council members here, Jeff Clark, is the president of the Wild Goose. It's a great festival for progressive Christians. It's kind of hippie-esque. I'm, I'm not... Everybody um, stays in tents over there. Well, everybody except me and three others. We stay in bed and breakfast. 4,000 people stay in tents. And I just... I. I, even looking in there in the tents, thinking about getting in bed with dirty feet, I get lightheaded and kind of lose my equilibrium. I'm just not built for it. Anything below a courtyard Marriott's roughing it for me. That feels like camping. <laughs> so, but they camp and there's 4,000 of them and it's sweat and sweaty and hot and hairy and they're very, <laughs> but it's a great time. Really is a great time. I've said enough. Jeff's a professor at MTSU, and it's really remarkable how he got on the board of the Wild Goose and then finally has become the president, and he's doing an exceptional job with it. It's just growing every year. I think last year we had, again, 4,200. One of the things I like at the Wild Goose Festival is at the close, every year we receive, you call it what you want, we receive Holy Communion, Communion, the Lord's Supper, um, the Eucharist. Uh, so we receive at the end of the service, and that kind of shuts down the entire event. This past summer, I didn't get to be there for the service, but I raced over at the end because I didn't want to miss that moment. And so uh, they were just getting in line, and people were beginning the process of going through the lines to receive the elements. And I found myself standing in the line immediately behind a woman who for all of the 10 minutes I was standing behind her, she was just quietly, no histrionics, I think she was trying to conceal even what was happening, but for 10 consistent minutes, she just kept dabbing her tears. And it was one of those where she just would take like her sleeve, I, I can still see her, she pulled her sleeve down and she would just touch the brim of her eye. She was leaking tears. And for some reason, the, the quiet tears of that woman who looked to be at about the age of my mom, maybe in her early 70s, they really kept my attention. Just, I couldn't, I couldn't miss them. The two of us progressed through the line, we neared the front, and when we were nearing the front, there was just a few people in front of her to be served, so we were just seconds away. I could feel her growing more and more unsettled. And I, uh, I felt like it had to do with act of communion itself. And as much as I wanted to check in with her, as much as I wanted to ask her if she was okay, for whatever reason, I just kept thinking better of it. I just was checked and I, I knew that I just needed to leave her alone. 
So I prayed for her peace and I directed the prayers toward her in the form of like wordless breaths, that breathing prayer that Jesus did when he breathed on them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. It's a form of prayer really inspired by Jesus. A a rabbi friend of mine actually, I heard him do a lesson not long ago on it and I've been practicing that, just to breathe. Numa Hagion, that's the Holy Spirit, just to breathe that into people. When it came her turn, I watched her now intensely. The tears are streaming a little more frequent. And I watched her as she received the bread and the wine and she lifted a very visibly trembling hand to her mouth. And I watched her standing there in front of the woman who had served her. And for a few long seconds, she stood there and you could tell she was just holding the wine-soaked bread in her mouth. She wasn't chewing. She wasn't swallowing. I remember wondering to myself, is she savoring the elements or is she being choked by them? I thought to myself, maybe a bit of both. I couldn't really tell. I do remember being particularly impressed by the woman who had just served the elements to her. Instead of doing what maybe I would have done and dutifully moving the line on because it had taken a long time and there was still a long line behind us, this woman who served the elements, I can still see her. She looked at me, she felt the press of the line, and instead of yielding to it, she leaned slightly forward with her eyes fixed kindly, reverently, lovingly on this human in front of her that she had just served. And she was obviously telling everybody else in the world that she was going to secure and hold this space for this divine being in front of her for as long as this woman needed it. You could tell she intuited she was in a special soul-making moment with this woman. After a few fraught seconds, the woman ahead of me finally opened her eyes and kind of moved away. And as she did, it seemed that she was going to either collapse or explode. She couldn't find her equilibrium. I, I quickly received the Eucharist, the elements, and then proceeded discreetly as possible to follow her. She stumbled over to the main stage that was just a few feet away. Her eyes were still closed, still leaking tears, and she leaned her full weight against that stage. It hit her about shoulder high, and she just stood there. I, I couldn't help myself. I had to get in, so I asked a nearby friend, motioned to them and asked them for a tissue, and I walked up behind the woman and just slipped it um, into her hand. She was so kind. She opened her eyes. She turned to me, smiled, thanked me, closed her eyes again, and I told her, I said, I couldn't help but notice how emotional communion was for you. And I just had to check and see if you were okay. You remind me of my mom. She laughed and said that she didn't think she was quite that old. (laughs) But she appreciated. I thought that was a very weak pastoral moment for me. Don't ask anybody if they're pregnant and don't tell anybody they look about like your mom. (laughs) She told me, she said, I'm okay. We made a little bit of introductory small talk and then she invited me, just out of the blue it turned and she invited me into a space to share a space around her very frayed heart that was holy ground. She just said it. 
She said, I have not been in a church service nor received communion in over 50 years. Jeez. 50 years. She called it the Eucharist, so I assume that she was either Anglican or Catholic or Orthodox. She said she had been to weddings and funerals, but not church, church, not mass, she called it. The last time she said, I was in a church service and received the Lord's Supper, I was in my early 20s. And in that service, she told me that she had devastatingly been refused the Lord's Supper. I mean, who refuses someone the Lord's Supper? I I read an article the other day written by an evangelical friend of mine, um, not lauding the fact, but he felt like it was an impressive article explaining why they fence communion, fence the Lord's Supper. Think about that language, Roy. You know that language. It was from your old group. They fenced the Lord's Supper so as to protect the Lord's Supper from being sullied by people who are not, I suppose, worthy. I mean, does that sound anything like the way Jesus did meals? How do you call that? You talk about religion taking something and not going 30 degrees off or 60 degrees off, but literally 180 degrees. This is the Lord's Supper modeled after the way the Lord ate meals. And he was always being castigated by the religious for eating with the wrong people, and he did it anyway. They told him that he ought to fence his meals, and he upbraided them. Seems like we would have gotten that somewhere in the first 2,000 years. But we fenced the Lord's table. She explained that earlier in the week of that service where she had been received, or refused the Lord's Supper, um, in that week, 50 years ago, she is a cradle Catholic in a small New England village, had privately revealed to her parish priest that she was transgender. She told me that she was identified as male at birth, knew very early it was wrong, and lived that imposed identity her entire life up to that moment. This would have been 1967. Think about her plight then. She went to her priest, 22, 23 years old, because he had been her parish priest her entire life. I walked in here today, and I saw people that I've pastored for 23 years since... Some of the kids, I've been with them, dedicated them, baptized them, married them. That was this guy to her. She wanted to tell him that this was her reality and she was going to seek gender confirmation surgery when she was able to find the money and afford the cost. Well, his response was tragically ignorant and ungracious, and one that has been sadly repeated thousands upon thousands of times to many an innocent victim. In spite of his failure, she told me that she went on to Mass the following Sunday, hoping against hope that the better angels of her priest's soul would step in. They didn't. He refused her the Eucharist. 
And so the church failed her. And accordingly, she never returned. She then described to me how she went on from that ill-fated week to lead a very full, successful, and happy life. Not bitter. Partnered for all these 50 years. In spite of the church's atrocious mishandling of her soul, she stood there in front of me, a very unbitter person. A person seemingly trying to give grace and understand. At that moment in our conversation, the question was so loudly begging in my mind, I had to ask it. And I looked at her and I said, why are you here? I mean, with, with that story and this life, why are you here? Why now? Why 2018? Why Hot Springs, North Carolina? Why the wild goose? She smiled and said that she understood the apparent strangeness of it all. And then she explained to me that earlier in the year, she had been diagnosed with early onset dementia. Based upon several factors, she said it would most likely be Alzheimer's. With her mortality looming, and now in the plainest of sight, she had spent a few months after the diagnosis building a bucket list. And one item near the top of that list, she said, was to, quote, make peace with the church. <laughs> Does anybody just want to ball right now? And yet laugh. I mean, it's some mad grace. You go far enough east and you end up west. <sighs> she wanted to make peace with the church. She, she told me, she said, before the Alzheimer's takes my mind, I want to make sure my heart's right because I won't have that chance back. Shortly thereafter, she had made the bucket list. She found out that a friend of hers was going to the goose. The friend told her about the event, described it to her, and she thought, I thought that might be, in that open air setting, that might be the safest way for me to not have to be in four walls and maybe I can get back around this there and I'll find the peace I'm looking for. Well, at that point, there was nothing to say, so we just hugged a long time and I internally took off my shoes because I knew where I was standing and I knew who I was holding and I knew it was holy ground. So before we parted ways, I, I asked her if she was aware that the person who had served her the elements was also a trans woman. Stunned, she said no. And with that, she just closed her eyes again, smiled, leaned back against the stage, shook her head incredulously because it was just too much. <laughs> As we said goodbye, and I watched her walk away, it seemed to me she was well on her way to finding the peace that she was looking for with this thing called the church, this thing a lot of us are still trying to make peace with. And this was a good start for her. I later, I had to go over to Jeff Clark, our Jeff here. I went over to Jeff and I said, I gotta tell you, I gotta tell somebody. And I told him the story and Jeff then looked at me and said, well, the woman who had served her, he said, yesterday at random, I picked her out and said, hey, would you mind helping us serve the Lord's Supper tomorrow? He said she immediately started weeping and said it had been 15 years. She was a minister at one point in her life, a Presbyterian minister, was defrocked, and her trans journey had led to that. 
And she looked at Jeff with, through tears and said, nobody has asked me to do anything in church in over 15 years. Think about that intersection of those two. Ah, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper. As a theologically progressive liberal Christian, I'm often asked, why do you still do the Lord's Supper? What's communion mean to you? Well, it means a lot to me. Um, it didn't always. I used to be scared to death of it. I come from a tradition we took communion once a year, not because we devalued it, but because we so valued it. It was, it was the sacrosanct thing, Carol, that we did once a year on New Year's Eve, and we would have a five-hour service, and we would spend the entire time preaching, singing, praying, preparing our hearts, even into a time of confession, because the scripture that was always quoted was from 1 Corinthians um, 11, and it said that there were people in the Corinthian church who were sick and even dying because they had been taking the Lord's Supper unworthily. And of course, in a very literalistic, non-contextual interpretation of scripture, that just scared the you-know-what out of us. And we, I, I felt like every time I took communion as a little boy, that once a year activity, I felt like the old priest in the Old Testament that would go into the holy place once a year. You remember? They would tie a rope around his ankle and they would put bells on the bottom of his robe. And the, the idea was that if he went in and his heart wasn't exactly right, it was such a holy place, God would kill him. And when the bell stopped ringing, that's why the rope was around and they would pull him out dead. And Jeff, that's the way I felt about communion. I, I literally felt like somebody just needed to tire. I knew myself well enough, even by the time I was 10 years old, that I, was, I had plenty to be ashamed of, that God wasn't too fond of me, and I was a long way from perfect. And so I was scared of it. And then as my ideas about God and Jesus began to reform, Along with that came communion. And I began to notice really the story in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul said, I mean, you, you just want it simple. Paul said, this is the Lord's table. You got the Lord and you've got a table. And he said, the first time the Lord ever instituted this thing that we formalized, he wasn't talking about transubstantiation, consubstantiation, metasubstantiation, and all the words that theologians talk about to impress that really mean nothing to any of us. Wasn't talking about grape juice versus wine. Wasn't talking about unleavened versus leavened. He was a young man who had lived his life lovingly with people and now was being horribly, unjustly tried and soon to be murdered. And he was fully human and he was trying to process that in his 30-year-old mind and so he came to this elaborate supper called the Passover feast because he was a Jew. And as a Jew, there were these formal ceremonies that they, they did that are beautiful. They still do them today, and I think they're lovely. I don't really like it when, you can argue with me later, I don't like it when churches do Seder meals. That's our Jewish brothers and sisters stuff. They don't take baptism and try to show us how to do it better. If you want to do a Seder, go to a Jewish synagogue. You know, don't appropriate their stuff. Um, but appreciate it. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was at that Seder meal, and then his heart broke. It just, it broke in two, and he said, you know, I, I, 
I know I'm about to die. It was, it, this is Black History Month. A few weeks ago was King's Day. It, it was Memphis for him. It was, I may not get there, but you will. I don't want to die, but I might. It was that moment for Jesus. And he looked around. This is what I think is really beautiful about formal things like a Passover meal in your religion. This is the, beautiful, this is the beauty of those moments. The formality points to history and some really deep and beautiful things for sure, but it also gives us the opportunity in a very practical way to live from it life. Jesus took that Passover meal, and for whatever it meant to him within his tradition, historically, and all of that, I think the most beautiful thing, Lee, is he took it in that moment of brokenheartedness, and he took it and he made it practical. And he took a piece of bread and he said, this is my body, and he tore it in half. And I don't think he was meaning that for 2,000 years, every minister needs to do it exactly like he did it. I think he was just doing something really beautiful. And he said, when you take and eat this bread, do me a favor. Remember me. Don't forget me. Please, don't forget me. And then he took a, a cup of wine and he said, this is... My blood shed for you. And he said, as often as you do this, it's once a year, once a week, who cares? But as often as you do it, do it to remember me. And that word remember, re again, member. Take the members of me that are so scattered right now that I can't get back together. Within, within moments, he would be digging his fingernails into the soil of an olive press saying, please, Don't let this happen to me, please. Three hours, he said, if there's any way that this cup could pass from me, please. Just before that, he had looked at his disciples and said, I mean, they were arguing about who was the greatest and who was right in their theology and all that stupid stuff that religion does. And Jesus stopped and looked at them and said, can you guys drink the cup that I'm going to drink? You see, Communion was first when Jesus spoke of it. The cup was first. I mean, it was first the Lord's table, and everybody's invited to the Lord's table. It's a place where you feel like you belong. Secondly, Jesus said, this cup represents not grape juice or wine. It represents a way of life. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? It's what I ask kids when they step into the baptismal pool. Can you be nicer to your sister? Can you be careful to not leave anybody out at school? Because Jesus then said, can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? That's not a doctrine. It's just this simple allegorical picture of a way of life. So it's, it's a table that everybody's invited to. And God, we all know how hard it is to be left out. Social media is killing all of us with FOMO these days. We know how left out we are, but to be included. It also is a a memory tool. I mean, isn't it interesting that he looks at them and says, please don't forget me, remember me, put me back together in your mind. And within hours, he's hanging on a cross and a guy looks at him and the guy says the same thing. Would you please remember me? Not get me off the cross, not take this all away, just whenever you get where you're going, please put me back together again in your mind. Remember me. Paul looked at the church at Corinth and said, somehow 
in church and communion, you have totally forgotten him. And Paul said, this is the way you've done it. Instead of the Seder meal, week by week, we now have created a new tradition. Paul said it's called the agape. It's the love feast. And they would bring a potluck and they would eat before church. And then out of that potluck, they had decided the only way they could really do the Eucharist or communion was to out of that potluck, Eucharist comes from Eucharisteo, which means to give thanks. So out of that potluck, after they would give thanks, they would take remnants of the potluck meal and that would be the elements of the Lord's Supper. And Paul looked at the church and he said, but a tragedy's happened in y'all's agape. Imagine that it's called agape, a love feast. I don't know exactly what this looks like. It's hard to piece together, but you'll get the gist of it. Paul said, when you come together, the rich people have bought really nice food that they don't share with the poor people. And the rich people have brought really good vintages of wine that they don't share with the poor. And he said, it's, there's this cast in the agape meal where the rich are eating the good food and the poor are maybe not even eating. He literally said, some of the rich people in the church are going home full and drunk. And the poor people, they're not, they're not only not full, they're going home hungry. And he literally said, it would have been better for you not to have church. Don't, don't even have church if that's what you're going to do. And then he said the words that I had never understood and I had been scared of him my whole life. He then looked at the church and he said, when you take the Lord's Supper, you take it unworthily. He didn't say you're unworthy. That's an adjective. He said unworthily. It's an adverb. It's the way in which you're doing it. And the way in which they were doing it was to not care for not just the people sitting beside them, but especially for the underserved. That's it. Steve, it's all you do. You take communion. You'll probably take it again tonight when you go out on the cold streets. He said, you take communion unworthily. You're not intrinsically unworthy. You're no more unworthy than anybody else. All of you have worth in the eyes of God. That's worthiness. But you take the Lord's Supper unworthily. And then he goes into this thing about some of them being sick and dead. And I don't... I don't know exactly what that means. I don't think God kills people, you know, for doing bad things. That's not who I think God is. But Lee, I've circled back around to it, and I can think, yeah, it would be sickness. It would be death. If we did church that way, if we did life that way, you might as well. I mean, it is dying. It is sickness. So he then goes into the 12th chapter, and I'll close with this a little story, but he goes into the 12th chapter and the 12th chapter, guys, is the body of Christ chapter. The 12th chapter following that is the chapter that we all know about where Paul said, hey, we're all a part of the body of Christ. Somebody's a hand, somebody's a foot, somebody's an ear, somebody's a nose, but we all belong here and we're all a part of the body of Christ. And everybody loves that 12th chapter where he's saying, you are the body of Christ, we are the body of Christ, the hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, prisoner, sick, they are the body of Christ. As much as we do it to them, we do it unto Christ. The Christ is us, it's all of us. That's right after he had said, we're dying as a church because we are not discerning the Lord's body or the body of Christ. Discerning the Lord's body is not boning up on the doctrine of the Trinity. Discerning the Lord's body is not getting clearer in your Christology. Discerning the Lord's body is recognizing 
the people all around us who are saying, you know, discerning the Lord's body is recognizing your own need to be included and remembered, and discerning the Lord's body is realizing you're not the only person in the world. There are other people who want to be remembered and be at the table just as much as you do, and everybody per Jesus deserves to be there. How in the world, Roy, we ever put a, got a fence out of that? Jeez. The body of Christ is us, it's everyone, and it's just all we're going to do is go over there and we are not going, or they're gonna pass the plates today. We're not gonna like, we're not gonna like look down into the cup and try to get a perfect picture of a bronze-skinned Galilean from 2,000 years ago. <laughs> Jesus was not that megalomaniac. If he knew, Steve, we were sitting around reflecting on esoteric theology looking at the wafer, he would be like, I am so sorry. That's what y'all thought I meant. Years ago, in one of the earlier iterations, Steve Wire and some of the folks who've been here, Jeff Bohannon has been here from the beginning, I decided, you know, because there was an argument back then before we were down the road a ways in progressivism of who should serve the Lord's Supper. Should it be elders? Should it be ministers? You know, can people in the church do it? If people in the church are going to get to serve the elements, do we need to have like a review board to make sure their life is holy enough? Woo! Mm. <laughs> and it occurred to me that this is... I mean, this is the broken body serving the broken body to the broken body. And I thought, I, I thought better of what we had been saying. And I said, from now on, whoever leads us in the bread needs to be experiencing brokenness in their life at that moment. And Mark, I remember one particular one stood out for me. I don't know why we didn't do this a long time. We probably had some, I don't know. I'm sure a committee came up with a reason why we ended this, but it was good for a while. And I particularly can remember right now a 42-year-old woman in the church. I had married her and her husband years before, 42-year-old, dying of cancer. I remember the Sunday she stood up, two months away from dying, bandana, atrophy. Gosh, she could have been 90, couldn't have been 90 pounds. She was probably 5'8". She stood up there, two teenage boys up against her her boys, and she held up a piece of bread and said, this is my body. And a guy from 2,000 years ago was very glad, Carol, to stand off to the side and say, yes. I mean, last time I checked, the last thing he did in the Gospels was to float away, and as he floated away, we couldn't take it, so we started worshiping, and the angels said, what are you doing? And they said, we're worshiping. They said, no, you're gazing at a hole in the sky. Go be the body of Christ. And she stood there, and when she took the bread and said, this is my body, broken, and hundreds of people snapped that bread. It's the craziest thing. You never could hear your own piece of bread break, but when 400 people did it, it was, you remember that sound? And when it did, those two boys put their heads over on her shoulder, and we remembered, we put ourselves back together again. And that is Christ. That is what Christ means. And the last thing that I would say was one day years ago, Stan Jr. 
was in second grade. He came home from school, got off the bus, and he was visibly upset. I looked at him, and I asked him what was wrong, and he said there was a new boy in class. I had ball gloves. He walked right past me, plopped down on the porch, just went over and sat on the porch like this, looked straight ahead. I sat down beside, I wrote this out the other day, just remembering it. I sat down beside him, and I said, what's wrong, bub? He said, well, there's a new boy in class, and he's having a really hard time. I said, tell me about it. He said, well, nobody wants to sit by him at lunch or play with him at recess or be his partner in class. I said, well, how does that make you feel? And I'll never forget that little boy. He looked straight in and he said, really bad and sad. He said, dad, one of my friends was really mean to the kid on the playground today. He pushed him down, and when he pushed him down, everybody laughed at him the way he looked there on the ground. We left him out of the kickball game. We leave him out of the kickball game every day. He said, today, when we left him out, I didn't want to play either, but I went ahead and played. And he said, I wished I hadn't, because I just kept, he said, I didn't do very good, because I kept looking over at him standing on the sidelines. So I said, well, what do you think you should do about it? He said, well, I'm going to sit with him tomorrow at lunch, and I'm going to ask him if he wants to play. He got off the bus later that day, or the next day, and I asked him how it went. He said, well... I sat with him today and I told him I'm gonna sit with him every day at lunch till other people start. And he said, when we were on the playground, he said, I got him to play and he said he was really bad. <laughs> but he said, all my friends said that he can play from now on. I'm sitting there with this little second grader and I think, you know, a lot of Christian denominations do first communion for their children when they're in second grade. Our church didn't at that time. So I thought to myself, Stan Jr. went ahead and did First Communion at an elementary lunch table. The Eucharist was one little boy being remembered by another little boy at a lunch table. And a little boy being remembered, put back together again by a few other little boys on a playground. And that, brothers and sisters, is why we look at the cup and the next time you take that bread, crunch it, bite into it, just remember the message of Christ that every human you ever meet is the body of Christ and are looking to be included and remembered at this table. And if you get that, you got the whole deal. And that's why we will always, I hope, you will always, we will always take the Lord's Supper here.